Welcome to the HBG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. All right, well, welcome back uh, to the pod. We are going to be looking at the book of 1 Samuel today. We have made it through one of the darkest periods in Israel's history, the book of Judges. And the book of Judges, uh, as far as like the time period of Judges ruling Israel, extends a little bit into this book. This book is named after Samuel, who's mm-hmm. kind of the last judge. What's kind of funny is mostly on the show today, we're going to be talking about Saul, the first mm-hmm. king of Israel's United Kingdom. But we don't call it first Saul and second David. <laughs> they get called first and second Samuel. This is originally one scroll. Yeah. But we're just going to be mainly looking at, at the transition to the kingdom and then Saul's reign today. Yeah. And so Samuel, I, I don't think the idea is that he wrote all of First and Second Samuel because his death is recorded in these writings. Right. Um, but it's who the story begins with. And so naturally, that's kind of who this entire scroll is named after. And um, in particular, we, weren't, we learned in First Samuel 1, verse 1, uh, Now there was a certain man from Ramathath Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jer- Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives, and the name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. And when the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. Um, so, very beginning, we're introduced to some characters we actually won't see for much longer in the books of Samuel, in the first and second Samuel. But we're first introduced to a guy named Elkanah um, from the hill country of Ephraim. And immediately we learn he has two wives, Hannah and Penina, or Penina, I, I don't know. Your I think guess it, is as good as mine. Yeah, but both of these wives were considered to be kind of rivals of one another, as it naturally would be the case when a man has two wives. Um, and so ends up, one of them is unable to have a child named Hannah. Penina is able to. And as the story goes, um, Hannah is going to end up praying about this. And it's kind of funny as she's praying about this, Eli, the priest, sees her praying and he doesn't really assume that she's praying, does he, Stephen? No, she appears to be drunk. And so he uh, kind of almost rebukes her. You know, how long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine. And she says, no, I'm not drunk. I'm troubled in spirit. I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. And uh, Eli tells her, go in peace. The, the God of Israel has, will grant your petition that you've made to him. And so all of this is really introducing Samuel. Mm -hmm. Uh, Samuel is going to be the child who will be born to Hannah. And a lot of this connects back to the stories we read about a while back in Genesis, where the Lord uh, gives the ability to have children. And here's another barren woman who is blessed by the Lord to have a child. And the Lord is going to use Samuel to kind of be an important figure at this transitional time in Israel's history. Again, in the book of Judges, You've had the, kind of these local uh, tribal judges who are really more like warlords, you know, uh, military leaders mm-hmm. defending Israel when they would sin and get themselves in a mess, and the Lord would allow their enemies to overtake them. 
Um, and we'll see a little bit of that uh, from Eli and Samuel in a little bit here. But the idea here is Samuel was special in particular. The Lord answers Hannah's prayer. Her prayer is recorded in chapter 2. It's beautiful to talk about what's going to happen. And there's a little bit of foreshadowing at the end of her prayer where she sings this song of praise or praise it to the Lord. And in 1 Samuel 2 verse 10, uh, she says, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And so we have foreshadowings of a king in this mm-hmm. book. And this is really we're going to be introduced to Israel having kings. That hasn't been true since they came out of Egypt. But kings are going to kind of define Israel from here almost throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Um, it won't be so much the case when they come back from captivity. But uh, this is going to be a really big transition in Israel's history, and Samuel is kind of the pivot point here. The other interesting thing is we talk about this kingship idea. In verse 3, you might have noticed that whenever it talks about Elkanah going up to the city yearly to worship and to sacrifice, it says he does so to the Lord of hosts. This is actually the first time in the Old Testament, chronologically speaking so far, that this term for God, Lord of hosts, is used, which I think is pretty interesting because if you, if you break down what this name for a God means, it, really the idea is that the God of the armies right. of heaven. He's not just really hospitable. Like right. hosts, yeah. not in the sense of, oh, he is our host today, but hosts as in huge groups of armies. Yes, and how appropriate is that going to be in a book that's all about what? Earthly kings. <laughs> the earthly kings in perspective to the God of the armies of heaven. And so it, it's not going to matter who's the king on the earth throughout the narrative of First and Second Samuel. God is still the king, which is what he always wanted. Uh, and we'll make that point a little bit more in a little bit. That's right. And that's why it's going to be so disappointing as we look at these first eight chapters. We have uh, Eli and Samuel's lives described. And they, they do some good things, but both of them end up really being failures, especially in the area of being a parent and a father. Um, at the end of Second Sam- or 1 Samuel 2, uh, we learn about Eli's sons, and they are worthless men, uh, just doing all kinds of terrible things, taking advantage of sacrifices and sleeping with the women who were serving in the tabernacle. And Eli rebukes them, but they don't listen to him. Uh, He just does not control them, does not do what a father ought to do for them. And so the Lord rejects Eli's household uh, from being priests. Um, And the Lord calls Samuel. And so Samuel is going to kind of serve in the priestly role, um, starting in chapter 3, and is going to take on kind of a priestly role, but he's also going to be kind of a judge in kind of a kingly role. Mm -hmm. And there's some nuance to all this, but it's going to be one of the first times that we see a combo role of kind of a priest and a kind of a king. Mm-hmm. Um, again, Samuel's not formally a king, like Saul will be, but uh, that's kind of an interesting part of the Bible storyline here. So, And it is it is important to note as well, in First Chronicles 6, 25 through 28, we do learn that he comes from the, the, the tribe of Levi. So he's able to serve as a priest as well, so just for what it's worth. Yes. So the first conflict in the book is the, the Philistines come in, who have just been the perennial enemies of Israel kind of throughout this story. And in chapters 4 through 6, you have the story of the ark being captured. And 
Eli is so shocked when he finds out that the ark is captured that he falls over in his chair and dies. Mm-hmm. Um, the ark, unfortunately, even though God commanded them to build this holy box uh, to represent God's presence, of course, God is everywhere, but it was a particular manifestation of his presence. But Israel kind of treated it like a good luck charm, mm-hmm. kind of like this lucky rabbit's foot. Like, oh, if we have the ark and we go into battle, we'll be fine. It doesn't matter if we're actually listening to God or not, but if we got the special box, we're good. And the Lord's teaching them and the nations a lesson about how they ought to obey him and listen to him. And so Israel does not succeed in battle. Um, Eli ends up dying. Mm-hmm. And then the ark is captured and makes the rounds through Philistia. And... Everywhere the ark goes, they're not treating it the way it's supposed to be treated. And so there's these plagues breaking out. And it becomes kind of this spiritual hot potato where they're yeah. like, we don't want the ark, you take the ark. We don't want the ark, you take it. Yeah. And there's this really cool story in First Samuel 5 uh, where the Philistines take the ark of God and they bring it into the house of Dagon, which is, which is a false god. It's not a real god. And uh, when the Ashdodites wake up the next morning, the idol Dagon has fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of Yahweh and uh, then they, I guess they don't really think anything of it they, they set him back up and they get up the next morning and the same exact thing has happened except not only has his head fallen off but also his palms are cut off from the threshold and so uh, this God is so in, inferior to who Yahweh is I think is the, the picture that we're supposed to see mm-hmm. from this and it ends up terrifying the Philistines um, to the point that they say, uh, the Ark of God, uh, the God of Israel, must not remain with us, for his hand is severe on us and Dagon our God. So they end up sending it back to the Israelites. That's right. And so Israel is grateful when they get the, uh, the Ark back, um, but they haven't really learned their lesson fully yet, as we'll read about later in the story. At the end of this opening section of the book, uh, Samuel serves as judge uh, for several years. Um, This is uh, where he helps Israel to defeat their enemies. And there is a moment here that we actually sing about in one of our hymns. When the Lord delivers them, uh, in 1 Samuel 7, 12, he sets up a stone and calls its name Ebenezer, Mm -hmm. which means stone of help. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. And so when we sing that song, uh, O Thou Fount of Every Blessing, and uh, Here I Raise My Ebenezer, Hither by Thy Help I've uh-huh. Come, this is a reference to First Samuel and um, some of his military victories here. And this is also a noteworthy section because um, Samuel pleads um, to, to the people. Um, in First Samuel 7, 3, he says to them, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your hearts to Yahweh and serve him alone, he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. And in verse 4, the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtaroth and served Yahweh alone. And so they end up doing what Samuel says, but unfortunately it is short-lived, as has been the case for this group of Israelites in the centuries before it with the judges. It was just Mm -hmm. an endless cycle of crying out to God for deliverance, and then shortly after that deliverance, turning back to the foreign idols. That's right. And unfortunately we see some... Uh, continued cycle in 1 Samuel 8 because when Samuel gets too old to judge Israel, his sons Joel and Abijah become judges, but we don't even count them in the list because once they become uh, judges, the people are like, listen, we're done with this judges thing. We want a king Mm -hmm. like the nations. 
So notice what they say in uh, 1 Samuel 8, verse 5. They say to Samuel, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Mm -hmm. And we know that it was ultimately in God's plan to give Israel a king. Yes. There was provision made in like the book of Deuteronomy, yes. chapter 17, for kings to reign. But I think the disappointment here is that the people of Israel don't recognize God as their king, and they want to be like the nations. That's their mm -hmm. reasoning for a king. Yep. Like Not because, oh, God wanted to give us a king. God, can you give us a king? No, we want to be like the nations. And of course, the book of Judges ended with the terrible situation where they did become like the nations, like Sodom and Gomorrah. Yes. And so this is a, this displeases God. Yeah. And so God is going to grant their request, but he's going to give them a king that ultimately is going to be mm -hmm. what they asked for, but it's going to be a, a, yeah. its own punishment, basically. And I really like what God does with Samuel in this moment, um, because Samuel is pretty disappointed at the people's request to have a king. And uh, I want to read this. This is First Samuel 8, verse 7. Yahweh said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Mm -hmm. And God says, like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, and that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. I think it's really cool that God looks at Samuel and says, stop taking this personally. That This is about me. That They have decided to not let me be their king. It's not about you and your sons, but it's about how they've been treating me. But I'm still going to have you warn them what a king's going to do. And so that's what verses 10 through 18 is all about. Samuel is explaining to them that he's basically going to tax them if they get a king. They're going to take your sons, your daughters. Your, uh, he's going to take a tenth of everything that you have. And um, 1 Samuel 8 verse 19, the people nevertheless refused to listen to the voice of Samuel and said, no, but there shall be a king over us. And this is important. They said that we may also be like all the nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Mm -hmm. That's the second piece as to why they wanted a king. Not only to be like all the other nations, but they wanted one king that would go out and fight all the battles for them. Right. And again, it's it, they're not looking to the Lord in this. And so the Lord's going to use Saul, his first anointed king, to ultimately teach them a lesson. Mm -hmm. And so we're introduced to Saul in chapter 9. And so there's going to be kind of two phases to this. First uh, Samuel 9 through 15 or so is kind of the first phase of Saul's reign. And we're going to see him rise to power and, and be pretty promising at first. He's going to look pretty good. Yeah. But then we're going to see a shift in him where he stops trusting in the Lord and starts worrying much more about what the people think about him. And he's going to disobey the Lord on a couple of key occasions yeah. uh, where he knew better and be rejected uh, as king. So we first find him um, in chapter 9, yeah. um, and we'll talk more about that in a second. Yeah, I was just going to say, too, he, he's from the tribe of Benjamin, so that's kind of like the, the youngest of all the tribes of, of Israel. So that's the tribe he comes from. And we're specifically introduced to him in chapter 9, being told that he was a choice and handsome man. And there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. And from his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. Mm -hmm. So tall and handsome. He, he kind of looks like a king, you know what I'm right. saying? He's that, the people's man. Exactly. But we're introduced to Saul looking for his father's lost donkeys. 
And we don't have time to get into all the ins and outs of this story. But it ends with Saul giving up on looking up or looking for his father's donkeys. He's he's seems to come in, in my opinion at least, as kind of a, a lost guy who doesn't really do a great job at shepherding this flock of his father's. Um, but instead, it, it loses the flock and doesn't find them all together. But in this process, that's the one that gets chosen to be the next or the first king of Israel. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Again, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. But uh, later when David is anointed, um, he's going to be out shepherding the sheep. Correct. But they're not lost. And, mm-hmm. and the king is going to be in some ways the shepherd of God's people. Yes. And so we're, we're going to see a failed shepherd and a, a, not a perfect shepherd, David. Um, but a much better shepherd uh, later on in the story. And so Saul is anointed king, he's proclaimed king, and and he's terrified at first and seems to be humble, maybe a bit cowardly, uh, hard to know sometimes. The text doesn't tell us all that's going on in Saul's heart. Um, But he, the Lord is with him initially. And so in chapter 11, he's defeating Israel's enemies. Uh, Things are going well. Yes. Um, Samuel gives his farewell address in chapter 12, which is really interesting to read sometime. He warns the people of Israel about how they need to walk in the ways of the Lord. It's a really moving It's It is a beautiful chapter. It reminds me a lot of the end of Joshua, actually. Yes. And so Saul seems to be, okay, he had a little bumpy start, but all right, the Lord's with him. He's trusting God. You know, Samuel is passing on. uh, And now, okay, we got a kingdom now. Saul has been established over all the tribes. So this is no longer little regional rulers, the judges, but one king over the whole nation. But then we get to 1 Samuel 13, and Saul's fighting the Philistines, and he gets scared. Mm Mm-hmm. And he's supposed to wait for Samuel. Samuel's the one who's supposed to offer the sacrifice. And Saul knows, I, I better not go into battle without offering this sacrifice. But what happens in 1 Samuel 13 and verse 8, he's waiting for Samuel. It says, he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come from Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. Which, I mean, that's just the way it goes, right? Like, as soon as you do the thing, then they show up. Um, and Saul went out to meet him and said, uh, meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come in the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself And offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And so I don't think this was just like a, a one-shot-and-done thing for Saul, but he knew better in this situation. And he's supposed to be the example for Israel. And he forces himself, so to speak. I mean, he gets scared, and he acts faithlessly. Mm-hmm. He disobeys the Lord when he knew better. And so the Lord says, okay, I'm going to find someone who's after my own heart, which is where we get that phrase for the life of David, right? A man after God's own heart. Um, it's said to Saul uh, here. He doesn't know who it's going to be yet um, that comes after him. But the Lord says, I'm, 
I'm going to find someone who's going to obey me. And that's going to be one of the real key themes we see in these books is the importance of simply listening to the Lord and trusting him at his word and being able to just do what the Lord said, even when it's hard, even when it's frightening, even when it seems like it doesn't make sense. God's ways are right. And we've got to learn to trust him even when everyone else is running. Mm -hmm. And even when, you know, it would be more convenient to do it some other way. Um, Saul represents the mindset of someone who cares more about image, more about people, more about um, security than he does about really trusting the Lord. Yes. So that gives us way into chapter 14, where we're introduced to the son of Saul named Jonathan. He's going to be kind of a key character we're going to see um, for several more chapters here. And Jonathan is a pretty good warrior, isn't he? I mean, he is a valiant warrior. He's able to to by himself single-handedly take out a lot of people. He seems to be this great warrior for the Lord. And chapter 14 uh, kind of chronicles one of his great victories. But it catches up to Saul, who makes what I think is the second big mistake that we read about in the book of 1 Samuel. And it's when Saul says to all of his men, Cursed be the men who eats food before evening until I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. So Saul kind of comes out and says, until we have victory over these people, none of my men are to eat or else they will be cursed. Right, which is like the stupidest thing you can do in a battle. you got to have fuel to go fight. And Saul just proclaims this foolish vow where everyone's got to do this. And Jonathan doesn't hear about it somehow. Right. He ends up eating some honey. And Saul is like, oh, okay, even Simone's son and a stupid vow. I mean, this sounds a lot like Jephthah. Yes. Um, he's going to die, and but the people end up saying, no, we're not going to let you do that. Yeah. Which, again, just shows you how Saul is weakening. He's losing strength and control, which in this case is kind of a good thing. Yeah. And the people rescue Jonathan from Saul. Um, well, and he, he puts... As a leader, he puts his people in a dangerous situation. He, right. He's not a good leader. I think that's the other thing we're supposed to see from this. He, he's not making good military decisions or kingly decisions and certainly not making good decisions as a father either as he was about to kill his own son right. um, for something he didn't even know. That's right. And so Saul continues his decline into chapter 15, and this is where uh, Saul is told some very specific things to do that goes back to the, actually the uh, the exodus from Egypt where the Amalekites uh, came out against e uh, the Israelites and did not spare them. And now the Lord is not going to spare the Amalekites. And so he tells Saul to go utterly wipe them out. And Saul obeys to the extent that he wants to. Right. He goes out and he gets most of them, but... The stuff that he doesn't want to dispose of, he doesn't. He spares the king. He spares the best of the animals. And he's confronted by Samuel um, at the end of this. And look at what it says here in 1 Samuel 15, verse 17. Um, and Samuel said, Though you were little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. 
And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Mm -hmm. And so Saul kind of pleads with Samuel here, but this is really the turning point of the narrative in Saul's life. After these three big mistakes that just show Saul's selfishness and foolishness and fear of the people, um, the Lord is going to, there's going to be a shift that happens. And after this, David's going to be anointed and the spirit of the Lord is going to depart from Saul mm-hmm. and come on David. Yeah, that's important to see. And the rest of 1 Samuel is just going to be this downward spiral yeah. and kind of descent into madness of Saul. And so the way this story ends is uh, there's this symbolic moment where Saul will reach after Samuel as he's trying to walk away and He'll rip part of Samuel's clothing, and Samuel will say, just in the way that you've torn this off of my garment, the kingdom of Israel has been torn away from you and your household. Mm -hmm. And so he knows that that's the Lord's will now. And this story ends with Samuel having to go and, you know, take care of Agag and kill him. And he is now doing the duties of what God's king is supposed to be doing. And it's all flipped upside down. Everything is messed up. And it says at the end of verse, uh, at the end of chapter fifteen, that the Lord regretted that He had made Saul king over Israel. So this point in the narrative is really dramatic. It's like, oh man, like first king's not doing good. Big mistakes. What are they going to do? Well, then chapter sixteen, God comes to Samuel and says, "Get over Saul. I've rejected him. Stop worrying about him." But I want you to go to a man's house, Jesse the Bethlehemite, because I've selected a king for myself from among his sons. And so Samuel ends up going down to Jesse's household. And there's this really cool scene. Of, you can take the time to read it. It's really dramatic because Jesse's kind of like parading his sons out in front of Samuel. And you can kind of, I'd like to think of them, you know, kind of walking through, you know, chest puffed out. Like, oh, you know, I might be the next one. And and God says to Samuel, uh, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. A beautiful passage that you might have heard before, and this mm-hmm. is the context for it. And finally, uh, Samuel says, look, God hasn't chosen any of these. Do you have any other sons around? And it's so perfect because Jesse will answer, there remains yet the youngest, and behold, uh, he's tending the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him for we will not sit down until he comes here. I love it. It's so almost theatrical, the way that it plays out here, that none of those were the right ones, but the right one was out with the sheep while all the other brothers were in. How symbolic is that of what David is going to do for Israel as a shepherd of God's people? It's a beautiful analogy. Mm -hmm. And so David is brought in. He's described as being ruddy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And he, Samuel's commanded to anoint David as the next king. And that's a really important idea, isn't it, Stephen? The, the idea of anointing the king. That's right. And uh, the word anointed is the word for kind of Messiah, um, the anointed one in the Old Testament. And so David is going to become, again, not, not a perfect man, as we'll see, but one who really is doing the will of the Lord and who repents when he fails. 
And so this is kind of the beginning of his story, which is going to overlap a good bit with Saul's story. But this is going to take us, David's story is going to take us well into uh, 2 Samuel um, and uh, dominate. I mean, we know more about the life of David than almost any other Old Testament figure. Maybe Moses would come close, but David, we're just going to have so much about his life. And so at the beginning of David's story, we learn that he was actually working for Saul and was a very good soldier in Saul's army. He also would play the harp for Saul. And um, when Saul would get these harmful spirits and kind of fits that he would have, David would play the harp for him and soothe him, kind of a music therapy thing. I don't know. It's interesting. But we also see in this section in 1 Samuel 16, 14, it says, The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Um, which in the previous verse, verse 13, it says the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David mm-hmm. yep. from that day forward. So again, yep. the Lord's no longer with Saul because Saul has turned his back on the Lord. And now the Lord is with David. And that's going to become more and more apparent as we go. So we come to 1 Samuel 17, one of the most noteworthy battles. And again, this is really early on. It may not even be in chronological order mm-hmm. here. Because this is before David's even serving in the army. And uh, his brothers are at war. He goes to check on his brothers, bring them some food. And there's this giant of a man taunting the armies of Israel day after day, saying, send me a champion, you know, let me fight with him, and mocking the Lord. Yeah. And David's like, are we just going to sit here and take this? Right. Like, God's able to give us victory. Like, why is nobody trusting God enough to go fight this guy? And what's really interesting, it looks like they're trying to bait Saul himself out to fight Goliath. Right. Well, I, Saul I, was head and shoulders that, above all the that's people. That's exactly right. That's why they made him king to begin with. Remember we read that earlier, that they wanted a king to not only be like the other nations, but a king to go out and fight their battles for them. But as the text reads, Saul won't get off his off his chair. He just stays there, and he's unwilling to go out and fight this Philistine giant who um, was about nine nine feet tall or better. And, and, and what's interesting is in this chapter, there's several things going on. It's not just David versus Goliath. If the Lord had not been with David, he probably would have gotten destroyed mm-hmm. in this battle. He was a shepherd boy. He wouldn't bring any armor. He's got a sling and five smooth stones. He's a good warrior, but not against this guy. But the Lord was with David. Mm-hmm. And so it's really the Lord against the, the quote-unquote gods yes. of the Philistines. And what's interesting is you remember Dagon, the Philistine mm-hmm. god, back yep. in chapter 4 five. and 5. Well, the same thing happens to Goliath that happened to their idol god. is He falls face, gra- face down to the ground when David hits him with a stone, mm-hmm. and he cuts off his head. Mm-hmm. So I just think it's so powerful to see the Lord's victory over the idols of the nations. And also in this chapter, David's doing... What Saul was supposed to be doing. Yes. He's fighting the battles for the people, and he's going to ultimately be king in the place of Saul. So this is, of course, one of the most famous Old Testament stories. And right after this, we have some more about Jonathan mm-hmm. and how when when Jonathan sees David, it says that he loved him as his own soul and like they were like knit together. It's kind of a cool idea that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, mm-hmm. 18 verse 1. And... Saul and Jonathan's friendship is going to be such a help to David as he is going to end up being a terrible enemy. Uh, Saul makes himself David's enemy. Um, And when the king is after you, life's going to be hard for David for the next several chapters here. Because here's the thing that we, we can't forget. Saul knows that Jonathan is not going to become the next king. 
Saul knows that. Samuel and the Lord, more so, has made that abundantly clear to him. Your kingship's not going to go on from here. This is it. This is a one-time thing for you. And so as he sees David really moving into position to be the next king, you can see this tension where Saul is really fighting against the will of the Lord. And spoiler alert, Saul does not win, no matter how hard he tries. Mm -hmm. And kind of a keep your enemies closer type mentality. Uh, Saul ends up giving his daughter, um, Michael, I, I believe would be the way to pronounce her name there, he gives her to David to marry. And so David ends up becoming a son-in-law to Saul. <laughs> and he is living and staying in the household of Saul, uh, at least in 1 Samuel 18 and 19 and 20. Mm-hmm. And this is where Saul begins his descent into madness. Yes. And primarily because of some of the jealousy that the people started singing songs about David. Oh, Saul's killed his thousands and David is ten thousands. Yeah. And so he tries to pin David to the wall a couple of times. He surrounds uh, David's house. Michael helps him escape. And Jonathan tries to help bridge the gap a little bit. But ultimately, Saul tries to kill his own son, Jonathan, because he believes he's helping David out, which he is. It's really interesting to me, too. In that moment of anger in 1 Samuel 20, where, where Saul leashes out and throws a spear at his own son's head, his argument right before he throws the spear is, don't you realize if we don't kill David, you cannot be the next king. Mm-hmm. And in that same moment of anger, tries to kill the very son that he wants to become the king. Saul becomes irrational with his anger against the Lord and against David and against Jonathan. Mm-hmm. Has, has no self-control at this point. Right. And, and, and Jonathan is just one of the coolest characters to study in this whole section because he knows David's going to be king. And it's just beautiful uh, to see how he respects the Lord's decision to make David king and continues to help David. So starting really in 1 Samuel 21 is kind of when David leaves the service of Saul for good and becomes a fugitive. We also see a lot of David's failures here. Um, He leaves and he gets scared. He lies to the priests about what he says he's on a secret mission from Saul, which they would have believed because up to that point, David had been working for Saul. But he lies about why he's there. Um, He takes some of the holy bread. um, And then he ends up running to the Philistines. And he ends up... uh, you know, trying to hide there until they hear the same song about you know, Saul has killed his thousands and David is ten thousands. And David has to pretend to be a madman, let his spit run down his beard and all this. And the king, uh, Achish, says, I got plenty of madmen, you know, like get this guy out of here. And so David is not being a man of faith in all of these chapters. The Lord is still protecting him and helping him. But sometimes we I think, view David's life as kind of, well, he was like such a good guy except for the whole Bathsheba thing. Well, even before Bathsheba, David's life is a roller coaster, and there are low moments well before we get to his sin with Bathsheba. And chapter 21, 22 is one of those, because in part because of David's behavior, Saul is tipped off, and he comes and slaughters the priests at Nob. The, the priest of Israel, like the actual priest that, that he would have served with as the king he ends up slaying them i just want to emphasize that it's, yeah it that is how wicked at this point saul has gone and, and crazy he's gone at this point just to see david dead that's right and so saul is going to continue his descent into madness but david also realizes that he shares some of the blame mm-hmm. because of his behavior and lying uh that it was part of what cost 
the lives of the priests there. And so Saul is coming after David in these chapters. And what's interesting to me is there are two occasions where David has the opportunity to bring it to an end. In 1 Samuel 24, Saul goes into a cave to use the bathroom and doesn't know that David and his men are hiding in the cave. Because David, through this time, kind of has a growing group of men who are on his side and helping him, kind of a little mini army. And his men are like, hey, this is the this is the chance. Like, you can kill Saul. This is the opportunity. Um, and David, uh, this is in 1 Samuel 24 and verse 4. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards David's heart struck him, because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave, went on his way. David ends up telling Saul what's happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's going to be another opportunity in chapter 26 mm-hmm. where David and his men go into the very camp and there's Saul asleep. There's a deep sleep from the Lord that's fallen on the whole camp. Nobody wakes up. And one of his men, uh, Abishai, who's with David, says, listen, you don't even have to do it. I get, give me one shot. I don't need more than one shot. I'll pin him to the ground, and this will be over. Mm-hmm. And again, David says, I'm not going to stretch out my hand against the one the Lord anointed. Even when David has the chance to take his own vengeance, he gives it up and trusts the Lord. And again, this is the very opposite of the thing that we saw from Saul, where he feared the people, feared his situation. David, if he had been acting out of fear, man, Saul would have been a dead man. Yeah. But again and again, David chooses to trust the Lord on these occasions. Yeah, sandwiched in between those two occasions is the story of uh, Nabal and Abigail, um, story where it shows foolishness on not only Nabal's part, which means fool, but also David himself as Mm -hmm. well being a fool. And Abigail is really, I think, kind of the hero of that story. Um, So you can take some time to, to read that on your own time. But David ends up marrying this woman named Abigail. Mm-hmm. Um, moving into chapter 27, it, it really does carry the rest of the book, at least 1 Samuel goes, because David is going to be spending a lot of time with the Philistines, meaning like like he lives among them. He has his own piece of land in Ziklag for a year and four months, we're told, in he's, 1 Samuel 27, 7. He becomes a double agent, right? Yeah. Like he's doing raids and he tells the Philistines, hey, I'm doing raids against Israel, but he's actually doing raids against Israel's enemies. Yes. But no, no survivors are left, so they don't find out about it for a long time. And then we get into chapter 28, which is a really interesting section where Saul, he is losing to the Philistines. He, he is, things are not going well for him. And he finally remembers, you know what? Things were good when I had Samuel around. I'd like to talk to Samuel. But back at the beginning of chapter 25, it was recorded that Samuel had died. So he's dead at this point. And he goes to these like spiritists or this woman to, to kind of like conjure up the, the spirit of Samuel. And this is a really fascinating story because at least the way I read the text, this medium, um, she herself is even shocked whenever she sees Samuel. It actually, it actually worked. Yeah, exactly. So it kind of tells me she was a fake or a phony, but for, the per- for this purpose, it actually worked, and she is floored that it actually happened. 
And the conversation that they have is kind of interesting. Samuel is kind of sassy with Saul a little bit, if I can put it that way. Uh, his first question to him is, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I'm greatly distressed. And Saul's like, I'm greatly distressed. The Philistines are getting closer and closer. Um, I want you to tell me what to do. And Samuel says, why then did you ask me since the Lord has departed from you and has become your adversary? The Lord has done accordingly as he spoke through me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, uh, to David. And you did not obey the Lord and did not execute his fierce wrath on Amalek. So the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also give over Israel along with you into the hand of the Philistines. Therefore, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Indeed, the Lord will give over the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. I almost wonder if Saul regretted bringing up Samuel's yeah. spirit because it was bad news. Uh, Samuel said, you're done. You're not going to get delivered out of this. Saul, your end is coming tomorrow, you and your sons. Mm -hmm. And wouldn't you know it, that's exactly what happens. That's right. And really, I mean, nobody's doing well in this whole section no. because David's leading a double life, pretending to be a devil agent for the Philistines. Yeah. And he almost gets conscripted to go fight against Saul. And it looks like he's willing to. Yeah, and he's like, he's keeping up the act. He has multiple occasions to, to come clean and not do this. But he almost has to fight against Israel, which is just stupid. He's not showing faith in the Lord in this section, and yet the Lord has mercy on him. And Saul is, of course, going to a medium, which is one of the things the law specifically forbid. He's just totally desperate and willing to rebel against God by going to uh, some other source. And so um, we come to the end of the book where uh, David is still, he, he is forced to stay home. Uh, by the other Philistines. He does not fight against Israel. And Saul um, is hit in battle, and he knows he's going to die. And so he tells his armor bearer, just kill me, so that it won't be said that these uncircumcised Philistines killed me. And um, he Saul, his armor bearer won't do it, uh, so Saul falls on his own sword. And his armor bearer follows suit once he sees that Saul is dying. And so it's just such a terrible end for Saul. And the Philistines capture their bodies. Um, uh, Jonathan is killed as well in this battle. And they uh, strip off his armor. They cut off his head and put their bodies on a wall. Mm -hmm. And um, at the end, uh, we do see that the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead which was one of the first military victories of Saul. The, the, he delivered those men. They come and rescue the bodies of Saul and Jonathan and give them a proper burial. Um, and that's the end of the book of 1 Samuel. Again, these used to be one scroll, and so it's kind of like, whoa, that's kind of an abrupt ending. Well, that's because it was originally all one story. And for the purposes of our, our podcast, you know, we'll, we'll stop here for today. But this really is a pivoting point in the story now that Saul has died. David has a big challenge ahead of him um, because he is the anointed king of Israel, but there's going to be a bit of a bumpy road to rise and reunify the people of Israel who are kind of scattering at this point and to then be the king mm -hmm. that the Lord wants him to be. I also would like to mention that there are different psalms that kind of sprinkle throughout the stories that we've read today. And so uh, if you probably did a Google search of that, you'd be able to find those pretty easily, the, the psalms in First Samuel. And it really does humble at least me as I read those because these characters were approachable especially David he's so relatable in the moments where 
he is doing the wrong thing and choosing the wrong thing, his, his words are a little bit different. And it's not so much hypocrisy as much as it is showing how human he is, that he wants to do the right thing, and yet he has chosen to do the wrong thing. And he brings those thoughts and feelings and emotions to the Lord in those moments where he sees his shortcomings. And um, that's an important thing for us to do as well, that even in, even in the moment of, of I've sinned, I've fallen short, turn that around to God and talk to him about that like David did. So for what it's worth, if you want to, I would encourage you to look up those Psalms on your own time. Um, but yeah, like Stephen said, Lord willing, we're going to get into Second Samuel um, next week, and it's going to pick up on kind of the aftermath of Saul dying and how David is going to become the next active king of Israel. Mm-hmm. Thank you all so much for listening to the podcast today. If you're enjoying what you hear, please subscribe, leave us a rating or a review. Um, If you'd like to study with us online or in person, 717-585-0949 or email us at capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. Or for more information on personal or group studies, check us out at capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for listening.